What up, though? Brothers and sisters, I want to welcome you all to another episode of the Man on Fire podcast, the Man on Fire show. I am your host, SB. And in episode three, we will talk to bassist Basil Farrington. Mr. Farrington has played on many hit records and was part of the major label studio scene in New York City in the 70s and 80s, and he is still very active today. Many of the records that you've heard Mr. Farrington play on were produced by his Roberta Flack bandmates, James M. Tume and Reggie Lucas. He and that group of musicians would go on to form the first incarnation of the band M. Tume. But we won't just talk about that band. We won't just talk about that experience. We'll talk about his journey throughout the music industry. Some of his other friends in the industry will talk about basses and we'll even talk about our musical philosophies, of course. But before we do that, let me remind you that this podcast is available on iTunes, on Google Play, on Stitcher, and on SoundCloud. Please rate, comment, and subscribe. And if you want to reach out to me, it's easy. Just hit me at manonfireshow at gmail.com. So let's waste no more time. Let's do it. Good evening, all. This is your host, SB, and this is the Man on Fire podcast, the Man on Fire show. And we're about to jump into another episode with uh, with someone that uh, who who has a lot of knowledge, and, and I can't wait to get this thing started so I can learn some things from this brother. Uh, my man, would you please introduce yourself? My name is Basil Farrington. All right, and uh, Mr. Farrington is. Um, a musician uh, and a musician that I'm sure you have heard you've heard his you've heard his plan but you may not know his name he's he's one he's one of those guys uh, Basil do you feel like uh, sharing a little bit of your history with us sure I was born and raised in West Philadelphia. Um, I started out in school playing trumpet, French horn, and brass instruments. Um, I picked up bass in Philly around uh, when I was 15 or so. I started doing it professionally when I was 17, I think. Um, the first group I played with around town was Sister Sledge at the time. That's they right, they were in Philly. I forgot about that. Yeah, they, they were just a, a group trying to get somewhere. And I was their first musical director. In fact, I was the musical director um, when they did the audition for their record uh, for, for their record deal with Atlantic. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had uh, also had Tom Bell's brother, Tony, helping because he wrote, uh, he would eventually write their single. She 
so um, that that was my start. Uh, from there, moving up in, in into uh, New York, I played. Wow, I, I played with a lot of people. Uh, I was part of the, uh, the the session business that was happening there. I mean, if I was to just just name names of people that I've played with on the road or recorded with. Uh, Stevie Wonder, George Benson, Roberta Flack, Grover Washington, Mary J. Blige, uh, The Temptations, The OJs, Al Jarreau. Um, you, you really can't remember them all, you know. It's, it's just tons yeah. and tons of people. I also um, took part in the, the television show that was on from, I think it was on from 95 to 98 called New York Undercover. One of my I favorite was, shows. I was one of the musicians on that show. Um, Up there at Natalie's, the, right? At, at, at Natalie's, and as well as throughout the throughout the the rest of the show, there were there were four or five of us, and we would take uh, ten or fifteen minute segments apiece, and uh, according to the the script that we got from uh, from Universal, you know, we would all just. Take take ten or fifteen minutes, and where music was called for, you know, we would, you know, each of each of us would come up with something. So that gave me a little bit of experience, you know, working with uh, kind of kind of working with soundtracks and so forth. And now, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm sorry to cut you off, but correct me mm -hmm. if I'm wrong. But uh, you were brought into that project uh, by by your homeboy, Mr. James and Tumay. Am I correct? That's right. Um, I knew him Tume a long time before that. When I started working with Roberta Flack, he was playing percussion in that in that group. Him and and a guy that would become his partner, my my old friend Reggie Lucas, played guitar. Um, so yeah, M, M Tume brought me in. We had uh, had had a fairly long relationship. Um, started with Roberta. They wrote the hits "Closer I Get to You" and "Back Together Again," which I'm playing on. of those of the closer I get to you they decided to form a production company mm -hmm. and the band that formed Roberta Flack's group at the time became that production company that was Howard King on drums Hubert Eves on keyboards Harry Whitaker on keyboards Reggie Lucas and uh, one of my best friends guitar player that we call Tree his name is Ed Moore we call him Tree because he's seven feet tall um now that uh in two man Lucas uh, for those who are not familiar, they were kind of like on some uh, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis back in the day. They were uh, they were doing a lot of business in the late 70s, early 80s. 
uh, they produce hits for Stephanie Mills, like Sweet Sensation, Never Knew Love Like This Before, um, like the aforementioned Roberta Flack uh, joints that you talked about, um, Phyllis Hyman. <laughs> I really can now my personal opinion I mean you know music always evolves and grows yeah. and you never want things to stay stagnant you don't want to live in the past you always want to you always want to you know see the future and all that good stuff but uh, looking back at history it seems like that period um, uh, was like the golden age because at that point technology songwriting musicianship performance and the industry side were in now the industry is the is the uh odd man out in this equation were somewhat in synergy at that time right right i've never sat with a session dude and really mm -hmm. got deep and one thing i always wondered why you'd have dudes on the session but different dudes out on the road well um because it's two different arts when you're in this, when you're in the studio, my my scene was a little different. Uh, half of what I did was like, um, you know, it was with it was with Reggie and M. Tume. So that was a family situation. We we had uh, we had benefits playing for those guys that the normal session guys didn't have. Lots more money per project, um, and just. Just lots of lots of privileges that you don't get when you're when you're a session guy. But the norm. I also did the normal session stuff too. And uh, to, when you're in a session situation, you are called to come into the studio and be as quick and efficient. Quick is the operative word. Quick and efficient oh, yeah. as you can be. To, you know, to, to come up with something creative, and that requires uh, oftentimes that required being able to read, you know, sight read fairly good. And so you, you have a set of skills that are necessary in the studio, uh, the ability to, to, to come up with parts quickly, the ability to read. Um, it, it really is about a speed thing. Um, mm -hmm. Not everybody. The clock is ticking. Studio time yeah. costs money, yeah. That's right, and, and back, back then, you know, like you were, well, 
you still you're budget conscious, but back then you were you know, you were very very budget conscious. Mm -hmm. So it couldn't be a thing of calling somebody on the date, even if they could play their butt off, if they were going to, to take uh, uh, you know you don't want take twenty to come around because you couldn't read the part. In other words, right. So um, there's two different skills. A lot of times the cats who are working live have entertainment skills that the ses session dudes don't have. You know, okay. they're, they're, you know they're, they're great for, uh, for the stage, but if you take that same person and put them in the studio, they may overplay, they may need a little bit more time with the music, and, and so on and so forth. In my case, uh, almost everybody that I worked for live had me on the record, uh, at least a, a tune or two, as you know, as well. Go ahead, brush your shoulders off, brother. <laughs> <laughs> but, so, uh, so, so you were well versed in 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 both utilities. Yeah, because so you, because, get the, so you were the the cat who could get the part down, but you were also the cat who could lay it down live. Yeah, and, and I, I don't mean to make it sound like um, like Prince would have hired me for the stage because of my showmanship, mm -hmm. but. You know, I, I did have, uh, I did have both areas covered, and the, the artists that I play with, it's not like you had to have, uh, uh, to be able to dance like the Temptations used to. Yeah. You know, I, I didn't, I didn't really work for anybody where uh, serious stage entertainment was required, mm -hmm. but um, for the most part, you know, the, the artists do look at that. Basically, I'm a jazz, you know, I'm, my, my thing was jazz. So even the singers that I worked with had a little bit of, of that attached to them. So it wasn't like I was out there playing with um, Earth, Wind and Fire. Mm -hmm. You know, now with Earth, Wind and Fire, you got to have some, some showmanship and, you know, some stage stuff has, has got to be happening. Mm -hmm. But um, I guess a, a more simple answer, uh, response to your question would be, that records are the domain of a producer. And a producer has a vision in mind, has an idea, and also has an idea of who best that's out there that he or she knows to pull that off. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, quite often, they're not even going to know the, the musicians that work for the artists. They know who they know, and so they they call those guys, okay. yeah, and that's 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 the way that that works. I can dig it. Now, another thing that I that I've heard is that you know sometimes the session cats were so in demand that they it wasn't worth their time to go out on the road for some of them because some of them, you know, the upper echelon top tier cats, uh, yeah. the triple the triple scale cats, uh, mm -hmm. were so in demand. They're like, I can make more money in the studio. Yeah, back back the then, you, they they certainly could. It would have to be something special to come along to to, to play that would pay. Uh, we used to say back when I was a kid in West Philly, would pay buku money. Mm -hmm. You know, like like my buddy uh, Anthony Jackson called me once to replace him because Paul Simon made him an offer that he couldn't refuse. And at the time, uh, Anthony was making six figures in the studio scene in in Manhattan. So Paul Simon, you know, he gave him an offer that he couldn't refuse, which, you know, clearly uh, he made more than six figures. And, you know, it was a, took him about six or seven months. 
So it's those when those kinds of things come up, yeah, the, the cats would would take them, but not so much just a, a, a regular. Uh, it, it would have to be somebody huge, you know, to, to pull those cats out because a guy like uh, drummer Steve Gadd, you know, back in the day, he, he was good for a quarter of a million a year doing dates, and you know, bass player Will Lee, um, Marcus. Um, you know, there was a handful, about a dozen guys that, you know, they were working so much that unless you were going to pay them out the out the wazoo, it just wouldn't be profitable for them to go out on the road unless it was with, uh, you know, back then during that day, unless it was with like a Phil Collins or, you know, somebody doing stadiums, uh, you know, paying all kinds of ridiculous money. Like a buddy of mine plays bass with, with the Rolling Stones and... Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Much. And uh, an interesting story. I ran into him just a few days before he did that audition on, on 48th Street in New York. And be honest with you, Daryl was about to leave the business. Things weren't going well. In fact, he was going to go, uh, go in one of them stores there to sell one of his instruments. And it was in that store that he heard that the Rolling Stones were auditioning for a bass player. It's about three, four blocks away, Studio Instrument Rentals. Mm -hmm. So Daryl went over there, uh, and he got the gig. And the, the Stones, what they do is they put seven figures in your bank account before the tour. Mm -hmm. You know? <laughs> so Wow. Uh, yeah. He, he good now, ain't he? <laughs> it, it, it went from zero to 60 in 0.2 seconds Munch been with the Stones for like 25 years 20. yeah and, and it's, it's done so much for him you know because he, he's gotten out in in, uh, in the Hollywood set and, and things that he really don't even have anything to do with, with music you know uh, but, but yeah it, it, he's <laughs> he's got no complaints now if he did everything right He's not ever going to have any complaints. Hmm. All right. Now, let's get off of them and back to you. Now, okay. So, uh, this is um, so this is like uh, mid, mid late 70s and things are popping because, uh, you know, Reggie and Entume, they got their production thing together. They're writing and producing. They're making hits. They're in demand. And mm -hmm. I guess along the way, they decided to make this a band and put it on record. Right. Well, that that was the, yeah, that was part of their their initial pitch. You know, we'll have a, a studio, a group, and then we'll go out as a band as well. That was that was part of their pitch to get us to leave Roberta because Roberta, I mean, it wasn't the Rolling Stones, mm -hmm. but uh, Roberta, I would say that Roberta and Miles Davis together, it used to be back in New York that if you were anybody, you worked with one or both of them. Like you had, mm -hmm. you had to go, go through that school. Roberta- Six degrees had, of separation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. She has had every, she, everybody has played for her. I mean, it's, it's just a ridiculous amount of people that, uh, that have gone through that situation. Some of them have gone through miles as well. And um, yeah, so we, we did the Entume band thing which wasn't supposed to be the m2 may band it was it was going to be something else 
But um, at the 11th hour, we got these phone calls saying, hey, listen, um, Epic doesn't want to go. We had all decided on a name and called and said, Epic doesn't want to go with uh, that name that we came up with. So they're kind of, since we, we're kind of different, they're kind of going with the with the M2MA thing. And this, this was all uh, BS. It was going to be his band the whole time. Mm-hmm. But the way it ran to, was run down to us is that, you know, it's going to be this cooperative band that, that develops like, like other groups where everybody is doing this and that and sharing and so forth. And, and then that just, it, it just wasn't the case at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and that as a live band, that group was not very successful. Uh, we didn't do it that much. His, any live success he had came after Juicy Fruit, which was with a completely different crew. Okay, so let me break it down. Um, <clears throat> the crew that you are part of, uh, you, Ed Moore, Howard King, uh, and Reggie. So mm-hmm. you you guys were the first incarnation of the band called Imtume. Right. And you guys cut two albums for Epic. Uh, right. One, uh, I be- to correct me if I'm wrong, I think the first one was called from 1978 in search of the pleasure seekers or the rainbow seekers which one okay let me uh because i now it's it's on my mind i need to know kiss this world goodbye uh-huh that's from the first one that was the first one that was from 78 and that yeah. one got my jam on it that's got love lock on it Oh yes, sir. Yeah, we had. I got. I got Hiram, and um, he played with us. Well, on the whole album, but it started out with that track because it felt like they needed another uh, another guitar player. And anybody they needed some. Anytime they need somebody on the outside, they would call. They would contact me, you know, and say, "Yo, man, go go get somebody." Because I had my other foot was also in that world with the. You know, with Steve Gadd, Marcus, and Eric Gale, and all of those guys, you know, mm-hmm. doing the doing the dates. So, um, yeah, I went out and got Hiram. Hiram is on most of that record, but he's definitely on Love Lock. Okay, actually, that's, when you go to, uh, I went to the M Two Made Discogs page, and when mm-hmm. you actually when you go there, uh, your version of the band is the picture that that shows up there. Okay. So um, now, speaking of Hiram Bullock, he was tight with uh, with Jocko, right? Yeah, and, and Florida, they they sort of, uh, I think they went to college together in Florida or something like that. And he was uh, he was on uh, he was in the late night band for a hot second, wasn't he? Yes, he was. Him and uh, Will another, Lee. Will Lee, a drummer I was very close to at one point, named Steve Jordan. Steve Jordan, yes. Yeah. Yes, yep. Indeed. 
Uh, I actually lived with Steve for about a year, me, him, and a guitar player. We shared a place in uh, in Manhattan. We were very close at, at a certain point. Okay, cool. All right, now, after y'all cut these two albums, these albums, uh, they sold modestly, right? And uh, the, the band albums didn't sell, didn't sell well. I mean, they didn't do well. <laughs> <laughs> I was I trying think, to, I was trying to clean it up. <laughs> I think the second one might have gotten to something like a hundred thousand. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the the first one had a tune on it, just fun in that that got us a little bit of work, live work. <laughs> You know, they, they didn't sell well, mm-hmm. neither one of them. And, you know, going back to it, uh, I can sort of understand why. But, um, no, they, they didn't do that well. Now, I know you and I spoke briefly um, via IM, and mm-hmm. either it was via IM or, 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 or on the public forum. And uh, I believe you were saying that um, at the time, M2Me was focused on doing a, a P-Funk type of deal. Music. Absolutely. Absolutely. He was completely and totally enamored by the whole George Clinton thing. Everything that he did, everything that he was trying to set up as a band was really kind of completely and totally inspired by George to the point where uh, he had this idea of making every single person a character based on the way that he saw him. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he, he had me wearing a cape and I had a, a his wife made all of the clothes. Camille, mm-hmm. she made all the clothes. He had me, he had me wearing a cape and an external jock strap. Wow! <laughs> so you were doing that before uh, before Larry Blackman was? <laughs> um, no, actually, uh, Cameo was out hitting it before we went on. We did a I'm couple of shows. I'm talking about the jock strap. <laughs> oh, <laughs> well. I, maybe I don't know, but um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but uh, yeah, he, he was completely and totally inspired by George Clinton. In fact, we had uh, the late Bernie Worrell brought him in for one of our regular sessions on the third Stephanie Mills record, but it didn't work. And that this is the, the thing with Bernie was one of those deals where. Uh, going back to what we were talking about before with the, the cats in the studio and the live guys, we brought, and Tume brought Bernie in to, to do some, a Stephanie piece and it didn't work. 
his genius doing what what he does with George. A lot of colors, a lot of uh, open stuff. I mean, he doesn't have any didn't have any limits when he did P Funk, mm -hmm. but in the, in the studio, it's totally limits. You know, especially for for popular music, it's, it's all a it's a laboratory up in there, and you got to figure out which part what works best with what especially in an m2a situation because it was never any music it wasn't like you walked in and uh you know basil man here's the bass part no basil came up with the bass part mm. you know and and tree came up with the nice guitar grooves and then howard decided what he was going to play quite often those guys would bring a tune in like never knew love like this before was almost like a bossa nova when they when they brought it in and mm. we beat that boy to death for about five or six hours before i started playing something different howard heard it and in Tume in the control room motion yeah keep that going keep that going recorded a little bit of the groove and then everybody else jumped in and you know they got a grammy and we got a check <laughs> <laughs> Your incarnation of the band was based on P-Funk, well, based on m 2 right, right. adoration of P-Funk. So he was trying to do a P-Funkish kind of thing with your incarnation of the band. That, that was definitely in his mind. He had envisioned a, a situation where, yeah, I mean, he was looking for that. That's, that's what he wanted. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that kind of funk, that kind of audience, um, that kind of money, mm. uh, that's for sure. For the band, that's, that's what he wanted. Clinton and them in for uh, did an episode of New York Undercover and um, something something happened <laughs> and uh, I heard about it after I recorded and that was the end of the, the George Clinton and Tume relationship. Wow. Okay. Alright. Now if I recall correctly and correct me if I am wrong you said that you know that type of uh, groove, that that P funk, that funk kind of thing, that uh, you know hardcore on the one type of deal, was not what you guys as musicians were kind of into. It was kind well, of yeah. a, a square peg round hole type of thing. 
We were. I mean, everybody. It was it was new for me because you know my goals coming up all had to do with with uh, with jazz, and so for me, in my value system, and I'm talking about before we even got in the band, like during the whole time when we were with Roberta and we were out on the road and everybody was listening to their own stuff on Walkman or whatever. Um, I wasn't the guy listening to P-Funk. Mm-hmm. They were. I mean, for me, at my point of development, I couldn't hear anything with Bootsy as a bass player because I, I had not learned how to appreciate what he was doing. Mm-hmm. But for the, re- the rest of the cats, they were into it. They brought me into it, mm-hmm. in fact. So by the time you know we, we formed a band, I had everything that P-Funk ever did. Um, I knew I knew everything and I loved it. I still do. But we we were the thing is that we were all, all of us came from a jazz background. Every single person except Tree and yeah, Moore. That's what I was getting that. Yeah. Uh we we all came from, you know, fairly heavy jazz backgrounds. So we happened to be jazz guys who were able to do R&B, but it, it's not the same thing. It's like we went out with uh we went out on a couple of shows once with the, the Commodores and, and also with Frankie Valley, And we just weren't taking care of business like those guys. What they were doing was natural to them. We were trying to do something that wasn't necessarily natural to us, although we all liked the music and everything. There's a difference between um, liking the music versus that's basically the only music that you can you can do. Mm-hmm. You know, like uh, let me think of a band. Um, uh, well, if I do that, I have to name names. But uh, we were just jazz cats who could funk it up, but it, it just wasn't good enough to the level where we would be able to compete with you know, all of the, the big bands out. Now, the, the, later on down the line, with Juicy Fruit and all of that stuff, um, he got, the guys in that group didn't know anything about how to play jazz. And, you know, none of those guys, they could solo or anything like that. They all, they were all Ooh, stone. Well, yes, yeah, they were all R&B dudes, strictly. Mm-hmm. You know, and he had a, of course, you know, a killing record. He had a, it, things were more successful. If you would have run into him too, man, today, he would say that his first album was the Juicy Fruit album. <laughs> <laughs> now, dig it. Now, I wanted to get back to that that jazz background thing. Um, now, a lot of cats out there were playing, back during this time, uh, they were playing R&B, and they were playing funk, and they were playing, uh, you know, uh, fusion and stuff like that. But, a lot of those cats, a lot of those studio dudes, and a lot of the uh, bands and stuff, even though they were playing this top 40 type of music, they had this jazz vocabulary. Right. Okay. And that's and that's uh, that was your bag. You were a cat who, were pl- who was playing R&B and top 40 music, but you had a jazz, musical jazz vocabulary. Yeah. yeah. Able to understand it, able to play it, able, you know, you, you bought it, you, you lived it. Um, I mean, coming up in Philly, you know, my thing was specifically R&B and jazz. Mm-hmm. Um, my two older brothers are musicians and 
so one of them is eight years older than me. One of them's ten years old, older than me. So by the time I was five or six years old, all I saw around the crib were uh, was manuscript, paperland all over the place, jazz albums. I mean, I'm five, six years old listening to Ahmad Jamal and Duke Ellington, and I didn't know that's the music that I was hearing around me. Mm-hmm. So, so that's how that's you know why and how uh, I got into that and of course being in the land of Gamble and Huff uh, you know there's a lot of that and you know during that time R&B was was rocking it was just you know 60s into the 70s R&B was the joint so you know you, you were going to be a part of that anyway if you if you played yes sir okay all right now your personal taste your personal musical taste. Mm-hmm. Let's say during this 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 era, this um, this uh, you know, mid to like uh, late sixties to you know early eighties, this era. Artist and in particular, what albums kind of hit that sweet spot for you? The album that made you particularly say, "Yo, that's it. That's 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 what's happening. That's." That's the real right there. Um, boy, that is a that is a tough one. I would have to say that it was the fusion stuff that made the most impact, and of the fusion in the fusion era, it would have to be. I would have to say, um, what was the the first? The first Mahavishnu album and the second Mahavishnu album. Intermounting the second, Flame. The Intermounting Flame, Flame and, and, and Birds of Fire.
that was that was pretty much land land breaking. I mean, like mind blowing. Just uh, it would it would be either of those two albums for, for me as as far as like my interest in instrumental music. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it, it would be those two guys. I was a fusion head. I mean, Weather Report, Return of Forever, Mahavishnu, all of that stuff when that was, uh, when all of that stuff was developing and coming out, um, I was very, very much into it because I thought here's a way to play jazz, throw funk in there, do every possible thing that you might be interested in. You know, there was there was a place to do it in that music. Whereas when I was working with uh, with some of the singers, you know, Sister Sledge and so forth, because I was very interested in, in uh, jazz. Those situations were I had to find something else to appreciate aside from playing, because as a, as a player, you had to play the play the part and play the role and make the groove, and it wasn't so much about uh, you know shining putting personal attention on yourself mm-hmm. but yeah it, it would have been probably those two albums um the first couple from return and forever about now, the first half dozen from weather report now when we talk about return and forever there were a couple incarnations of that group as well my i like to i i, I t- tend to lean toward the classic lineup uh Bill Korea, stanley clark uh, Lenny White, Al Demiola. Uh, even though, <laughs> even though I, uh, Al Demiola is not one of my favorite people right now. Um, yeah, he took some Donald Trump pills. <laughs> so, but before that, they had Bill Connors. Right. Um, so when you say those first couple Return of Forever records, you're talking about like Light as a Feather. No, I don't mean light as a feather. I mean after that. I mean the first electric record, which was the one with with Bill Con- Connors. It had Space Circus and him and the Seventh Galaxy and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, that's when when I went. I got an opportunity through Stanley when they came through Philadelphia to go go to Soundcheck. Uh, at that time, before they were big, they were playing at a, a place in Philly that seated only maybe 150 people at at, at max. And I got a chance to go down during the afternoon doing the sound check. And um, I was like, man, oh man, I, I gotta get to this some kind of way through somebody. You know, this this has got to happen. I mean, I just love this. So yeah, it was, it was that. And then uh, when Al came in, I liked that second album as well. And I liked the third one, Ro- Romantic Warrior. Mm-hmm. After that, it kind of started uh, tailing off the fusion period was leaving yeah you know everybody's writing was getting tired and everything mm-hmm. um i think the, the album after romantic warrior music magic music magic and that's that's when it was like okay all right this this it's over that was the last one i bought my, my friend jerry brown was playing uh playing drums at the time i was happy for him to get that gig but that music was uh you know, he had his wife singing a whole lot of stuff, and it was just not the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, my personal favorite from them, I would have to say, was probably is like I said, the Al Demiola period. Um, Where have I known you before? On the red cover. Yeah, yeah that was the second one. 
and um, the one right after, um, No Mystery. Yes. With Jungle Waterfall, Day Ride. Right. Stuff like that on there. Yeah, so. that to me, that was like advanced R&B. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, so. Advanced folk. <laughs> Speaking of which, question that popped up in my mind earlier when you were talking: um, How did you? How did you not end up in in stuff? Um, I wasn't wasn't connected enough. I wasn't um, when I say connected. I wasn't socially. You had to be in the right social crowd. Everything was dependent on what you did socially. Unfortunately, I mean. Clearly, you had to and be still able to. Today. Yeah, yeah. Clearly, you had to be able to do some things musically. You had to be qualified in certain kinds of ways, but it was the, the, the social thing first. You know who who, do you, who know? you you know who you would know who you who you hung with, who you did certain activities with. Uh, um, all that stuff, and I wasn't, um, my thing wasn't that social. You know, I, I was like, you know, I, I wanna play, but I wasn't a hangout guy. And not being a hangout guy made me, and I, I can you know, say this in retrospect, it made me appear to be uh, unsociable, austere, um, to myself and and all of those those kinds of things that, that was before my, my social personality bloomed but back then I you know I would just do the job and uh, do the show, go is back to cool? the room yeah you, you you satisfied with the bass part all right later all right well look we're gonna go so and so and do such and such oh, I'm good y'all go ahead you know so when you do that I, I didn't know it at the time but when you do that you were putting yourself on the outside mm. all of them guys stuff they live breathe ate uh you know practically had keys to each other's houses mm-hmm. and i wasn't uh i wasn't in there i wasn't a first call uh you know head of the line kind of a guy mm-hmm. so yeah, stuff that that would not have been you you couldn't have gotten into stuff without being the bass players that were in stuff you know Willie and um Gordon I forget the, 
yet. Uh, you know, th those guys were always working together. They, they were a family. And then most it, of it, that group went like, off with Paul Simon. Yeah. Yeah. Gad, uh, Richard T., and uh, who's the other cat? Uh, Gad, Richard T., I don't think and, Eric, uh, Eric Eric Gale. Eric Gale, okay. Uh, Eric Gale wasn't in stuff. That was Cornell Dupree that was in stuff. Right. So. Yep. Okay. Man, I miss uh, I miss Cornell and and Richard. I did a jingle with Richard T one time, and this guy played the flight of the bumblebee with his left hand in C and his right hand in C sharp. Serious? Wow. I mean, imagine that the flight of the bumblebee playing two separate keys with two different hands. He was a brilliant, brilliant man. Just, just unbelievable. You know why uh, Richard T is on my mind. Um, I very recently, in the last couple of months, I uh, got a hold of a copy of One Trick Pony. You dig what I'm talking about? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for for the un, uninitiated, One Trick Pony was Paul Simon's. Uh, it was his Purple Rain. It was his debut <laughs> debut <laughs> film, and where he played a musician on. Uh, and his his actual band had small roles in the movie as his band, and uh, Richard T was probably had the most prominent role in the film um, yep. of of all the band members. Uh, he he got the most lines. Uh, yeah, so yeah, and 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 I'm I'm, I'm gonna ask you to snitch a little bit. Uh, did he did he use a, uh, a MXR ninety on his roads? <laughs> I don't think so. I'm trying to remember for for certain. Um, Cause I love I love his his phase road sound. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't. Honest answer to the question is I don't remember. Okay. Now, but yeah, he he definitely you you knew you knew he was in the group when you heard the music. He had that sound. I thought you would know because you you identified um, the phase shifter that your boy uh, Anthony Jackson used on for the love of money. Oh well, that's different. That's my brother. I know everything about him. <laughs> I know nah, stuff his nah, mother. Nah. I mean, th that cat is a genius <laughs> player. Uh -huh. <laughs> Without, and that's that's common knowledge. That's that's a given. But he he is also uh, interesting personality. You you know that. that. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. He is what I was saying about myself in terms of things not being able, like not being in stuff because of social thing. Well, Anthony is that on steroids. Hmm. He is he is still not an extremely sociable guy. Hmm. He's way better than he was when I first met him. But yeah, you you are absolutely right. <laughs> He's a different kind of dude. Now. Um... Now I don't know if you know, but I'm I'm based even though I'm heavy I'm in the fusion and all that and all kinds I'm you know whatever music turns me on, but basically at heart I'm a funkster, um, mm -hmm. and one day and like when I play a lot of times I, I can't help it but I slap you know <laughs> I, I try to be tasteful that's not a sin <laughs> I try to be tasteful about it you know what I mean um, uh -huh. and, and serve serve the song or whatever but uh. One day, this is my introduction to 
the mind of Anthony Jackson. Because at that point in my life, I had just heard his stuff, you know, and I was right. like, you know, that dude is phenomenal. And I forgot where I saw it, but at some point he wrote an essay about either it was either an interview or he wrote an essay about slapping and how much he despised it. Mm-hmm. In Bass Player Magazine, yep. <laughs> so you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, and, absolutely. And it wasn't just like, yo, that's not my thing. You know, he's like, I think there, you know, I choose not to, blah, blah, blah. And I think that, you know, you could achieve more musicality without it. It wasn't that your man went in. He went <laughs> in. Like that yeah. shit cheapens the music. That I'm sorry. I don't cause <laughs> language yeah. and I don't know who's in your house. Um he was like, that's that stuff cool. cheapens the music and it's you know, it, it, it something about lower intelligence. I was like, Jeez. <laughs> yeah, he, he takes it to uh, he takes it to another level rather than, you know, what you said. You know, it's, it's just not the most musical thing. You know, he, he goes, you know, it's it's for him. It's like a curse. Like, don't even talk about it. Don't don't do it. Um, in fact, there was a. One of the Shocker records that he did, um, what was the name of that that tune? It wasn't a tune that was ever a single, but it had some slapping in it. And he wouldn't do it. They had Shocker's brother overdub him. Mark Stevens. Uh, what was the name? Of, what was the name of that song? Um, it wasn't Clouds. It wasn't that? No, it was on that. It was on that record. It was an album. Record. It was on the other side. Um, Let's find mm-hmm. out. Uh, I can't think of it, but um, you know, I'll look it up while we're while we're doing this. But yeah, he he wouldn't even, and it, you know, we weren't talking about like we want you to do some Lewis Johnson stuff. This was just a couple little a couple little pulls. He said, Nah, uh, uh-uh. nope. And he was pissed that they had Mark do it, Shocker's brother. He was pissed that there was any slapping on a tune that his name was associated with. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he, he just absolutely, um, absolutely couldn't, there's a lot of stuff that he, that he can't stand in music and slapping is at the top of the list. Mm-mm-mm. Now, and if I recall correctly, he said he, in that piece, he said he would do it if necessary, if the producer wanted, but he it would be against his will. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's they, not what he said. He didn't say he would do it. He said he learned how to do it just so, just you know, just for I guess you know, fun and giggles. But he would never mm-hmm. do it on a record. That's what he said. That's that's exactly right. And let me see. I'm pulling it up here. The tune is called. I think it was Fate. Okay. But yeah, he you you got that right. I mean that's. It's not a sore point for him anymore. You know, if you bring it up, he'll just he'll say, you know, nah, I don't do that. There are people who do it better than me and, and let it go. But initially he was he was on fire. <laughs> he was on fire with it. Now, um uh speaking of that, I I lost my train of thought that quickly. Um oh I noticed and then it was something else that he that he wrote that I read. And this is coming back to you. Um, he was told, uh, we, uh, we know that uh, 
Anthony was one of the first artists that Federa work was uh, working with. Um, yes, Federa, the uh, the bass luthiers. Um, uh huh. And Anthony had written something about how uh, he designed his own bass. He calls it the contrabass, and he said that bass is supposed to have six strings. Right. Um, now I noticed that whenever I see uh, any of your any basses that you have or basses that you're admiring, they're either five or six string. Well, it's just because that's most of the pictures. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not. I don't. I don't really have a preference. Okay. Uh, I have a. I have a four and a six, um, and what I use all depends on what's you know what works the best. Okay. But his his philosophy was that bass guitar has four strings. Oh yeah, it's not bass. It is bass guitar. That was another right. point of his. <laughs> it's, it's not a bass. Uh, it is a bass guitar, right? It's a, it's a bass guitar, and his philosophy is that it has four strings because that was just their mindset for wanting to make an electric version of the acoustic instrument. Mm-hmm. But that, in actuality, since it is a guitar in a lower register, it should have six strings. Mm. Well, all right. <laughs> now, me back. I, the first time I saw Anthony play uh, was in 1972 or three. He was playing with Billy Paul. My brother was the drummer and the musical director. Mm-hmm. And he took me down to, he, he always was bringing me down to the club because Billy at that time, before hit records, kept great bass players. Before Anthony, Alfonso Johnson was Billy's bass player. Okay. Uh, so I, I went down to see Anthony, and it was probably the first and only time I thought, maybe I'm barking up the wrong tree with this instrument. Because at that time, 1972, 1973, I wasn't, we, we weren't seeing bass players play like Charlie Parker on solos. Mm-hmm. I mean, this guy was was killing it. And I'm sitting there looking at it. I'm 17 years old or whatever. I'll never be able to do that. That's just, oh, my God. You know, it was it was really, really depressing. But, um, you know, I was only four or five years into it at that time. It was supposed to be intimidating. He he had been playing a, a much longer time. And he started as a guitar player. Mm, okay. Um, but I had never, a lot of the things that people will see like Victor Wooten do now and, and, you know, they'll, they'll faint. Anthony was doing that stuff back in 72, 73, and he just won't do it now. Mm-hmm. He just, he thinks that the bass solo has become, uh, something that people do just to fill in because the tune stinks. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you solo here. Well, no. Why don't you make this tune happen, and so no solos are necessary. That's that's his thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, these days, all he wants to do is rock the bottom, and his solos quite often are chord solos and not like beboppish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, he's different, different kind of a guy, and um, he r- remains to this day to be. A best friend to me. Okay, that's cool. 
Um, now let's get more into your thing. Now, uh, when you started playing, uh, when you started playing the bass, when you know you were really um, your per- your first professional instrument, which what was it? You remember? <laughs> My next oldest brother uh, played everything. He had bought a bass from the pawn shop, and this was like a no name nothing i have no i no clue what the, what that instrument was he paid maybe 60 dollars for it in the pawn shop mm-hmm. so uh my first real bass was a excuse me was a precision okay why did you choose the the precision over the jet uh didn't have much money the price was right anthony had one <laughs> Those those are the reasons. Okay, fair enough. Now, I'm, I'm personally I'm a, I'm a J cat, but um, I have I have a P style configuration joint. Um, yeah, I'm, I got, I'm I got, a J I'm a J guy now as as well. Okay, all right. I got nothing against P's, but uh, for what I for what I play and what I do, uh, J fits it best. Um, now you you are also really into Federa. For their instruments, yeah, I, I am. Um, my six-string bass is is a is a Federa instrument that Anthony gave me long time ago, and uh, there's yes, I'm I'm really into Federa. <laughs> <laughs> now, what is what is it about them versus like a Sadowski or something like that or a Lakeland that 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 um, that speaks to you? Um, I don't really have a frame of reference for what the what the other companies do. I know that with uh, Federa, one of the things, and you know this, one of the things that you you often have issues with as a base ages, especially if you're in and out of the, the clouds, is neck workage, the, the neck moving. Mm-hmm. And I was impressed uh, with Federa. Anthony took took me up in there and the the wood i don't know if they still do this but at the time they would pick go down to south america somewhere and have like a wood fest and pick pick the wood and everything and then bring it up in the shop in brooklyn and let it sit there for like 12 months before they cut it to make an instrument so by the time that you got it the the wood really had the, all of the, the major shrinkage and and so changing it was going to do had already been done mm-hmm. so uh it was the craftsmanship that got me at first but don't let me kid you um i was using a a jazz bass and anthony gave me a fodera for my birthday in 90 or 96 or something and with the passage of that instrument were a lot of uh, very emotional things that to this day if I think about them enough made me emotional because he was a cat that I idolized mm-hmm. and with him pat with him passing me this bass he you know he basically said I, I want you to know man you're one of the cats and like coming from him, 
that was just like it's heavy you know it, it was it was it really was heavy and i i mean i i I shortened what was about a half hour or 45 minute speech about I heard what you did on this and I heard what you did on that and when I came to such and such a show and blah 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 well listen they're going to start making these bases for me and I don't need this one anymore so this was yours if that had never happened I might never have gotten to Fodera mm. that's that's the honest the honest answer I got became a Federa guy after that, even though I had had a Ken Smith base and one of the guys, uh, his name is Vinny. When I had the Ken Smith base, he was actually working for Ken Smith and he carved me. I'm a Leo. He carved a, a lion on, on my base and made the, uh, uh, electronics. It had a built in Mutron, and LEDs everywhere I go, man. Bass players will be lining up to, to look at it because it was a one of a kind, one of a kind thing. Mm -hmm. So, and he left Ken Smith and uh, hooked up with his buddy to, to, to form Federa. That was another thing that helped me along. That you know, oh wow, the dude that did all of that slick stuff for me at Ken Smith with Ken Smith, he's now uh, he's now with with Federa. So that was another thing that helped. But it was the, the emotional thing with Anthony that start started it all. It's their craftsmanship. That's the that's the basic thing with them is is the way that they put things together and they hold uh, the preamps are great. Uh, the bass that I have now was made in 1989. Mm -hmm. Had trouble with the neck one time. Mm. Yeah, that's that's the six string that's that's in my uh, the Facebook profile picture. Okay. Word up. Now, delving back into your personal taste, uh, a lot of times uh, when you and I speak, we talk about what's going on musically now, which to be <laughs> honest and being perfectly honest, and this is not to dog anybody or to be elitist or anything like that, there's not much going, I would agree. going on musically I would, now. I would. Now, if you step outside of the mainstream pop world, and when I say pop, I'm talking in a broad sense. I'm talking uh, mainstream R&B, mainstream rock, mainstream country, mainstream dance, you know, that type of stuff. Um, mainstream hip hop. When you step outside of the mainstream pop world, you can get into your, uh, what I call musician's music. You know, stuff mm -hmm. like your, you know, your your, your Satriani's and Vi's and, uh, uh -huh. you know, um, why have all these names escaped me? You're Victor Wootens and right. stuff like that. So if you if if you really want playing in musicianship, you can go find it. But it would be outside of the mainstream yeah. pop world, right? Um, but even Vic, there were, uh, Vic went through a um, a phase because I don't really follow Vic these days, and that's no fault of his own. Um, but he went through a little phase where he was trying to like kind of simplify. And like, uh -huh. you know, just do like a, a funky R&B type of thing. This was the live in America era. Right. Um, so there's a part of us, I believe, you know what I'm saying? While, you know, we, we get off on the on the uh, the um, technique on, on the technique and stuff like that. Uh, there's a part of us that just, you know, likes a, a good groove. So absolutely. No, there's no doubt about it. I mean, you, you can even uh, in, in a to attest to what you're saying, if you went back 
to the 70s when people like Lenny White were doing solo records, uh, George Duke, they were, they were always trying to go for a hit at a certain point. Mm-hmm. You know, Patrice, Patrice Russian was very successful with, you know, the Forget Me Nots. Um, Lenny White had a couple of albums that had straight up, you know, R&B on Yeah, it. 29 stuff. Yeah. Peanut butter and uh, stuff like that. There you go. There's, you know, there's absolutely no doubt about it. Everybody at some point, no matter how, you know, you might be a virtuoso or whatever, but most of those cats at some point tried to hit that. I mean, look at Herbie. Her- Herbie's like the, the, the poster boy. Poster child for it. <laughs> you know? So ab- absolutely. I was yeah, reading... It's, it's, um. I don't know if, if if the website is still up. I would I would hope so. Uh, George Duke, who's one of my absolute favorites, I was devastated when he passed away. Um, yeah. Um, because he, the reason why I liked him so much is because he struck that balance between chops, uh, but b- putting those chops on top of great songs. Exactly. And, um, and emotion. Yes. Yes, indeed. Um, but George George's website, um, he had a discography section. I don't know if you've ever been to George's website. He had a discography section, and he wrote a little blurb about each of the records that he's done. Oh. And um, he talked about uh, linking up with Stanley. Yeah, this was for the first Clark Duke album. Uh-huh. And his quote was, he said, by that time, Stanley had played all the Return to Forever type music he cared to. so I mean so at at a certain point you know I I would I I think you know the chops the chops type of stuff after a while you know you're like hey let let me just jam a little bit Um, so in that vein um, outside of the fusion-y stuff what was what was really uh, doing it for you as far as today is concerned today and 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 before Wow, man, I don't, I don't even know where to start. Um, well, let's start with today. Let's make it easy. Today, I'm a, uh, these day, it used to be that it was about what was happening with the bass and what was happening with fusion music, but today it's about what's turning me on with production techniques and, mm-hmm. and sound and, and so forth. Um, it's it's hard for me to even name. I can't name an artist. That things are so far and few between these days that um, mm-hmm. I'm tr- I'm trying to think of what I've done on my on my iPod that I I bought recently. My problem is that I'm all over the place. I like the most severe technical music, and I also like some hip hop that people who come from the the hip hop era of greatness can't stand. So I, I'm just like uh, I'm all over Please the place. It's, it's, <laughs> it, it's, it's hard for me to, to name uh, to name one thing. I tend to to go to get into stuff that's new for me. Like he was saying, Stanley did all of the whatever that he could. Well, for me, for the past two and a half three years new has been hip hop. Mm -hmm. And so I've taken to studying uh, some of the production 
of some of the successful hip hop guys not to do what they do, but to see how I can incorporate it into what it is that I do. Like, uh, just to give you an example, uh, 40 with Drake, Drake's producer using the, the lo-fi, um, low-pass band filters and stuff in his production mm-hmm. and, and things like that. I'm not necessarily talking about Drake's songs, but just the things the that happen, used to with, make you know, with, with the mm-hmm. with the producer does. Um, yeah. Mike Will made it. He's another guy. He has some things that I listen to and say, oh, how did he do that? What, what, where is he getting that sound from? And really, that that's kind of where I am right now. I, I hardly ever listen to anything for bass reasons or for any other reasons other than I like the song and I like the production. Mm-hmm. So... It doesn't really answer your question, but that really is where I'm at. When my release comes out, it is just like all over the place. If I had a regular record deal, I would be a marketing nightmare. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) (laughs) Because, you know, people have seen me talk about, uh, not like Anthony, but they've seen me talk about slapping. And my thing about slapping is when that's all you can do. Because my half of my record has slapping on it, mm-hmm. but I also have giant steps soloing through it, and and you know other things that show show different sides. I'm mm-hmm. I'm all over the place. I don't have one particular thing thing that I like. Um, so unfortunately, I can't answer your last question because I'm I'm all over the place. I don't have a specific. I can't think of something a specific artist or a specific anything in the past couple of years really that I've that I've latched on to other than trying to figure out what some of these producers are doing with uh, with songs and so forth to see if I could incorporate it into my music. That's some okay, let me let me parlay that into a question to you. How do you how do you balance? How do you balance your chops, your 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 artistic growth and all that and still connect with your audience? You got to make sure that the song is cool. That's the nothing is more important than a song. Even bass players who uh, who are attracted to chops or who are attracted to slick things that bass players do, they're going to be more attractive to it, more attracted to it in a tune that they like, mm-hmm. rather than uh, just some some sad piece of something that has a whole lot of uh, a whole lot of bass stuff in it. And unfortunately. Bass players are good for doing that. Uh, just uh, writing something, putting something together that showcases what they can do on the instrument as opposed to putting something together. It's a musical that, exercise more so than a song. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. it, exactly. So my thing is is to always try and have, um, even if the song, I, I've got a tune on my record. Uh, it's called On Fire and it's in, uh, seven eight all the way through frank gambali is playing guitar uh barry miles and and his brother terry silverlight are playing piano and and uh, drums and it is a fusion guys fusion tune but at the same time it's pretty mm-hmm. it's not just it's not just a bunch of notes it's pretty and it's listenable mm-hmm. um you you can't do stuff um, who could like? I guess 
Demiola on his records. He has a lot of stuff that has a lot of machine gun guitar playing. Mm -hmm. And after a while, you Up know, if that's scale. the heart of the, he probably you know, if that's the heart of the song, <laughs> you get you you know, you're gonna get tired of that. Um it does, whatever you do as a musician has gotta be encased and has gotta be clothed by a good tune, a good jazz tune, a good R and B tune, a good whatever it is. Mm -hmm. It's got the, the tunes got to be good so to my end to try and make that happen i always try attempt to make sure that one of two things are happen happening or both that is some kind of a groove and it has some kind of prettiness to it mm -hmm. you know now for me uh birds of fire had a groove you know it wasn't um papa's got a brand new bag mm -hmm. but it, it had a groove it wasn't Lucy Goosey fusion, like you, you get some people, you hear some stuff, dun, 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 and you know, after a minute, it's like, ah, but you know, it had, it had a constant thing going on, you know, over, over and over again. Yeah, exactly. You know, it was constant. You know, I had the solos on top of the whatever was five or seven, I forget. Um, but it still had a, uh, it had a, a groove about it. So I try and make sure that everything that I'm doing has one or the other. Most of my st stuff on my record is, uh, I would say, will make you bob your head. Okay. But I have some other stuff on there that, as well, for people who aren't, who are only familiar with me from the closer I get to you and back together again and, and things like that, where they'll hear it and go, whoa, I didn't know that that was happening. Mm -hmm. You know, because most of the stuff that, uh, everything, ex except maybe for one record that I did with violinist Michael Urbaniak that I've done that anybody knows about, it was me in the studio playing a part, not necessarily doing what I would have done if I had complete, total free reign. Mm -hmm. So for me, this is like uh, going to be emancipation where, you know, people will finally know uh, not only that I can do more on the instrument than what they've heard, but also, you know, about the writing and the arranging and the, the production as well. Now. You've been talking about making this record for a while. I have. When it's, it's been two, see. it's been two, three years that it's been uh, <laughs> that I've been talking about it. And what delays it? Um, the fact that I that I learn more for, and at some point you just got to release it, no matter what. But I've been a mastering student for two or three years, actually for longer than that. And every time, like I'll get this plug in, or I'll get this, or I'll get that, and this will be perfect on such and such a song. Like I got a plug in recently uh, by Plugin Alliance, and it makes whatever you use wide. I found that when you put that on the bass, oh my goodness. So yeah, it, what's the name of this plugin, brother? <laughs> Please uh, tell me. Uh, I think it's called Stereo Maker. Okay. 
and the company is by Plug-In Alliance. Uh-huh. The plug-in is actually called BP Stereo Maker, I think. Okay. Um, and things like that would continue to happen where because of my growth with the engineering side, I would learn stuff and say, wow, man, when I was trying to get such and such a thing to happen on such and such a song, this would be perfect for it. And so then I'll go on and, and, and use it on that tune. And don't let me buy more software because then I'm auditioning tune, auditioning sounds. And next thing you know, I got three tunes, two of which are better than ones that I already had. Mm-hmm. But I promise you, I'm not coming up with anything else. Right now, it's about putting it all together and having it out. No, no matter what else I do, or anything else I do is going to be for a second record. Not, not for this one, because it can't be but so perfect. It can't be but at a certain point, you just got to do it. And I've done as much as I possibly can with this from mm-hmm. a mixing, mastering, playing standpoint. Uh, there are a couple places where I would like to get a saxophone. I don't have any saxophone on it. I would like to have some saxophone solos, but I'm not going to die if I don't get it. Music Obsession. Okay. All right. Now, let me ask you this. You've been in the game for a minute. You're a vet. Why is why are you getting around to putting out solo records now? Um I suppose because it's easy for anybody to do it now as opposed to before. I wasn't ready. I didn't have anything to say. I wasn't uh, I wasn't skilled enough as far as putting just putting things together. Um, somebody gave me a holler way back in in the seventies. I did an album with uh, Michael Urbaniak and his wife Ursula Dusiak, and from from that album, they did uh, Downbeat did a. Uh, they did a write-up on it, and they basically said, the album sucks, but this new bass player, Basil Farrington, blah, 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 blah. And so as a result of that, I got a call from uh, this guy, Skip Drinkwater, who was going around picking up sidemen and doing records on them. He did Alfonso Johnson, Entume, a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and he contacted me about doing some stuff. And I said, well, at this point, I don't write, you know, it's not happening. Well, we can, you know, as long as you play, we can hook that up for you. And so what he what he hooked up, I'm like, dude, this ain't happening. I'm not going to do this. These tunes stink. So <laughs> I didn't do it. Before. I didn't I didn't do it before because I wasn't good enough. Um, and I'm doing it now because I have a lot to say. And plus, I don't have to send I don't have to have an agent and go talk to record companies and mm-hmm. you know that side that side of the business is gone you want to do a record now you do it you do it you put it out <laughs> you do it you put it out yeah exactly. yeah and plus what makes it really good now is the fact that i can do whatever i want to do when you when you were the record label everything's got to they have to be able to market it so everything's got to got to fall within a certain uh you know under a certain umbrella and I would be able to do that, but it would be shortchanging myself because uh, I got to be one of the only people who would have, uh, uh, 
some modern hip hop artists on the iPod, followed by John Coltrane, uh, followed by John McLaughlin, followed by the Delphonics. I mean, I'm just all over the place. There's, there's no one particular thing that I like, except I don't care for opera and I don't care for original country. Mm-hmm. But anything else, if it's good, no matter what the genre is, I'm into it. Is there anything? Usually when you talk to uh, musicians, um, especially ones who've, who've done a lot of studio work, they'll tell you about that one jam or two jams or that one album that was bad, but <laughs> it's on the shelf. <laughs> and uh, Or... Uh, well... Which one is yours? Uh, I did uh, there's a, a little bit of a story attached to it. I'll shorten the story. Uh, Roberta lived in... She lived in the Dakota, 72nd and Central Park West in New York. Mm -hmm. Her place was on top of John Lennon and Yoko Ono. Um, I'm going to cut out a lot of this. Uh, About four months before John passed away, me and the drummer Howard King were called to record for him. Howard and I was like, yo, we get ready to record with John Lennon, man. John Lennon. You hear me? So, because uh, we had visions of, you know, once you record with John Lennon, then that puts you into that other thing, and mm-hmm. Phil Collins will be calling you, and this person will be calling you, and next thing you know, you got one of them, the million-dollar tours or, or whatever the case may be. So we did uh, two tracks with John Lennon that were never released. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, of all of the stuff that I've done that's never been released, that one kills me the most because it was John Lennon. And, and, you know, John Lennon, don't, as much of a liberal as he was, wasn't a whole bunch of bloods. There's a term for you from the 70s. Wasn't a whole bunch of bloods um, recording on his records. Right. So the fact that he had me and Howard, you know, that was like, that was real special, but it never came out. Um, it's a killer. There's one other thing I recorded <laughs> recorded with drummer Tony Williams, and that one was never released. Um, I recorded. Oh, it's the ones that were never released, man. That that'll that'll get you. But specifically to answer your question, it was the two tracks with John Lennon. Wow. They were they were good tunes. Um, I thought that they would have done well. I forget what the what the single was that came out, uh, came off of that album. But for whatever reasons, the the two that we did were it was kind of like what uh, Quincy was doing with Bad. I mean, he would have like I don't mean Bad with Thriller. Um, they started out with like 250 tunes or something like that. Well, Lennon started out with 85 for this particular record hmm. and had to uh, to cut them all down. Was this the uh, Double Fantasy record? <sighs> Double Fantasy was uh, the last one that he put out during his lifetime. And that, was, that came out in, I believe, 1980. It would have been, I believe, the first one that was released after he died. Milk and Honey. And what what was the one, not Milk and Honey, what was the one before that? Double Fantasy. 
Yeah, it was double fantasy. Okay, because one side was was his tunes, the other side was Yoko. No, 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 no. I take it back. They will alternate. It will be one of his tunes, then one of hers, then one of his, then one of hers, like that. Yeah, yeah, that was because I remember when I hear, heard it, I said, "Okay, I dig." You know, this is the wife. <laughs> the wife. Okay, I got you. Because <laughs> <laughs> the reason why I remember that is because uh, uh, my my cutoff there is a woman. And right. so I would I I let that rock, and then when woman goes off, Yoko Ono comes in, and no disrespect, but Yoko Ono comes in, yeah. and and, and know, ruins I, my thing, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> she, she ruins my mood, you know. Yeah, it's like I couldn't, I I really couldn't understand what the what the thing was with uh, her. It was like when we before when we were talking about returning forever, Chick did that same thing. Uh, his wife didn't write, but he had her singing on some tunes, and I, I have the, a feeling that he wrote tunes basically to be able to have her sing. Mm-hmm. And that was just like the beginning of like I remember the tune "Music Magic." It's like, come on, man! <laughs> oh, come on! After all that stuff you did, "Music Magic." <sighs> but. Um, yeah, that's that's the way it was with with John and Yoko. We probably got bumped because Yoko said, "I want these two tunes on here, so leave the other ones alone." Mm-mm-mm. Well, <laughs> all right. Yeah, what you what you going to do? Yo, did you play on that on on, on Reggie's uh, Starfire thing? It was him. No, no man, I was just talking with Tree about that the other night. I don't know who those guys are. Um, that record was done at a time when relations amongst all of us What's were that? not were not good. Mm-hmm. Um, Reggie, I, I, to this day, I don't know what happened with Reggie and Ntume, why they broke up, but today they're cool, they speak, they talk on the phone all the time. Mm-hmm. But I, I know with us, with, with the band, we were made promises about, you know, the, the, the speech was, yeah, we'll leave Roberta, Reggie and I will start this production stuff, and then, you know, we'll be a family. So, like, you'll have your, your artists, and, you know, you'll use everybody, and 50% publishing will be yours, and the house will split the other 50, and, you know, everybody will have their own thing, and we'll just be like a like a family, like, you know, Jimmy and Terry and Gamble and Huff and, and so on and so forth. Well, when it came down to it, that was a lie. That never happened. And uh, because it, when we finally affirmatively got, no, you're not getting publishing. Well, at that point, I became the bass player in the booth who no longer could hear bass lines. <laughs> we were recording for Lou Rawls. Mm-hmm. And this was, this was right after the big, you're not getting publishing stuff. We were recording for Lou Rawls and I'm sitting in the, sitting in the booth and two may counts the tune off. I didn't play anything. He came in the booth. Hey, uh, I did. Were you playing? Couldn't hear anything. No, I wasn't playing. Oh well, what's what's up? I, said, I don't hear nothing. You got a bass line? What you mean you don't hear nothing, man? Just play one of them Sazabian things. His nickname for me was Sazab, B A S S backwards, mm-hmm. bass backwards. Just play one of them Sazabian things, man. I ain't hearing nothing. I did that. Sazab was to do with the cape, right? Right, exactly. Because <laughs> I remember that from uh, from the back of the album. Everybody okay. had a uh, 
a character right. name, and yours was Sazab. Right. <laughs> so, and that was, that was my all bad. in, in two days, So what happened was, individually, all of the rest of them started following my lead, and it was like, hey, I don't, you know, I'm not hearing nothing. What, what you want me to play on this? You the mastermind. After, you 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 give me the part. <laughs> <laughs> after they got wind of what was going on, the first thing they did was replace me with Anthony with uh, Marcus. But they got a surprise. Marcus had called me. Yo, man, your boys called me. What's going on? I told him what the deal is. He said, All right, I I know what to do for that. So Mar- Marcus went up went up in there and. They went over the tune. All right, let, let's cut this. So Marcus said, uh, hey, there's no bass charts here. Like, what, what you, what's up? Oh, just do what you do. It's, it's cool. You know, just just do what you do. Oh, okay. Well, you got some writer's forms? But they were like, keep your writer's forms. Well, I'm, I'm helping you to write the song because I don't have no, you know, you don't have no music here. And. You know, I mean, I don't want to come up with nothing. This line and it becomes, it becomes the body of the tune, and it makes the tune happen. And, and then, you, you know what I'm saying? I mean, you know, y'all know. So, they couldn't do that tune. Marcus walked. Mm. <laughs> so they tried another guy. By now, the word, word was around all around Manhattan. The word was out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, about three or four projects later, and Tume had to call me. Hey man, I'm doing something for the spinners, man, and trying to get these cats in here to do uh what was it? It was did not blow did not blow your mind. And man, they just don't know that thing, man. Can I get you to come in and and do the track, man? What what would it take? See, you want me to come over come over to New York? Do you? All right, well, um, I mean, we we still good for a G like before? I said, nah, uh-uh, we're not good for a G before like before. 2500 25 oh Cesar. oh you're gonna kill me man all right well call somebody else i got the 2500 mm. so uh when reggie did that starfire or sunfire thing him and Tume were had split up i think at that point that was just before he hooked up with madonna and before m did juicy fruit that's right. i don't know i don't know who those musicians are. he did her first album what's that that's right reggie did her first album yes a lot of people don't know that they, they don't know and i was with him when he went to uh the bmi building to pick up the pick up the check he called <laughs> he called me and told me that oh man they told me that the first First check is in. Man, would you go up there with me? 
That's what you need me to go up there before, with you before. You seen a six or seven figure check before? But this was this was a little different. So we went up there, man, and uh, I gave the people the dues and, and stuff. They opened up the envelope. The check was for ninety seven k plus. Wow. The first check. Since then, Reggie's son has graduated from Harvard. <laughs> he bought his mother a five-bedroom home about a mile from his. I mean, Madonna was cool for him. Yeah. You no, know, plus back together again, closer I get to you, um, and other things that he's done mm -hmm. that were money's coming in, but they weren't big, big, huge things. So yeah, no, I, I wasn't a part of that, and I don't know, I don't know the guys that he used. Okay, because I didn't recognize the cats on the cover. I looked at the cover. I'm like, these. I don't know who these other two cats are. Yeah, um, I still don't. I still don't know who they are. Now, beside, like I said, beside your boys, my original question was what I was getting to. Besides your boys, who is your favorite producer to work with? Um, it's, that's hard to say. One of one of the things that I did that didn't, another thing I did that didn't come out was for James Ingram. It was Tom Bell produced. Mm -hmm. And that, be, because, like, if I had to go from past to present, like everybody who's ever called themselves a producer. Um, I am such a Tom Bell fanboy that it doesn't make any sense. It's just it's just ridiculous. I, I'm I'm so much up in the in the Tom's booty that it don't make any sense. So I would have to say that when the time that I got to to work with him, that would have been it because he he was as far as produ production concern uh, is concerned what Anthony was to me on base in 72, 73 when I first saw him for the, the first time. Yeah, that, that answer, answer to that question would easily be uh, Mr. Bell. But because all of the other stuff was just like, I wasn't a part of it. Um, with him, Reggie and him too, man, I was a part of it. You know, there were things, there are parts of some of their hits that are there because I said so, or because Howard said so, or because you know, Hubert or, or, or whatever. So there's a special, even though it ended up nasty, there's a special kind of uh, thing going on there. I have no communication with them too, May. I have communication with ev with everybody else in the group. Mm -hmm. Nobody else in the group has them too, May, has communication with them too, May either, uh, except, except Reggie. Um, but yeah, answer to that question would be Mr. Bell. Okay. In fact, I can't. Nobody, nobody else even, even comes to mind. That for everybody else, it was like, when is this going to be over? You know, this is a guy with a whole lot. <laughs> he's a guy with a whole lot of self belief. I'll say it like that. Okay, I got you. He, he complete and totally. He's the kind of dude that if a hundred people tell him, don't put that oboe in there he will have it in there because a hundred people said not, not to now
it, the story on Betcha by Golly, wow, is was that his relatives, his little niece or something was that Uncle Tommy, that sound like white people in the front. What what is that? A flute or oh what is going on there? I don't like and they teamed up. It was like at a at a family outing. No, Tom, we don't we don't like that. That's not going to work, is it? Oh, y'all like it? Okay, good. Because I do. And next thing you know, <laughs> bet you by golly. What? <laughs> how, how humongous a hit was that? Yeah, yeah. I was going to ask you if you had any insight as to why the Mighty Three <laughs> became Gambling Huff. Oh, man. Um, let's just say... <sighs> How do I say this? Um, from what I understand, and I know scores and scores and scores of guys who have worked down there in some capacity, my understanding is that those guys, G and H, are really, really, really deep when it comes to business. I'll just say it like that. And they made an attempt to go in with Tom Bell the way that they go in with a lot lesser people. And Tom wasn't having it. So what they did was made it so that each of them gets a third, a 33 and a third percent of whatever any of the others do. Mm. But the, 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 the story that I got was that the breakup occurred because of business business reasons that, you know, they were trying to uh, they were trying to yang Tom. Uh, see, they, they had a whole stable of writers down there on yeah. staff. You know, they, these guys were just on staff and they, they would write stuff and they would get. I never worked down there. I never saw this with my own eyes. I'm only telling you what has been told to me mm -hmm. um, that the, the deal is, is that, you know, they can hire you as a staff writer and you come up with something great. And like, they would offer you, let's say your average guy, you never made much money. And right now you're not making much money. The most you've seen in your life is $40,000 in a year. So here you are, you've written this tune, and they like it. They come to you and they say, hey, look, uh, we really, really like this piece. Here's uh, 15 grand. Can you use a check for, check for 15 grand? Whew, man, 15 grand. And, and guys would allow themselves to be bought out, and mm -hmm. then the tune would be like a humongous hit, you know? So that that kind of that kind of thing is what they uh, the story I get is that that's what they attempted with Tom Bell, and you know Tom was like, "Look, who you think you're talking to? I'm not one of them writers that you picked up off the street, Holmes." Right. So uh, they decided to still keep it together financially, and and even. Even after that, there were a few times when Tom came in and did arrangements, like that's his arrangement on Close the Door. Um, there were a few other Gamble and Huff things that, that Tom Bell uh, did arrangements on. 
not that many, but you know, hey, he was making a piece of everything Gamble and Huff did, and they were making a piece of everything he did. So it ended up being, it it worked out for both of for okay. all of them. Fair enough. Fair enough. I was sad to see see them let it go, and that the building is going to be turned into something else now. Yeah, yeah. So. The the last uh, which which one? You mean the one? Uh, I don't know if what you saw was Broad Street or Twelfth Street. Um, it was the did, one did, with the did it say the blue the blue neon sign. Okay, that's Twelfth Street. Yeah, that was the that was the original when I was a little dude. That was the one my brother used to bring me up up to. Uh, First time I ever saw a session. Sigma Sound, uh, 212 North 12th Street in Philly. Yeah, man. It's, it's a different day. <sighs> All that stuff is gone. All right, we'll dig it. Anything that's on your mind, uh, musically, culturally, artistically, that you, that you, you know, and want to get off your chest? I think I'm gonna just just keep quiet. Um, I'm real. I'm really about the, the music these days, and I'm I'm trying to be just trying to be open. And I appreciate people who are open. Um, I see so much hatred amongst musicians about this ain't cool and that ain't cool. And I understand not everybody likes apples, not everybody likes bananas, but if you don't like if you don't like a banana, it doesn't mean that it's not sweet. It's just not sweet to you. And right. so I'm kind of on a mission to, to, to hopefully my record will help spread the mission, you know, to like lighten up and, and open up. If a person's not doing the kind of music that you like, they're not a terrorist. They're not. I mean, <laughs> I hear some people, some people describe, you know, it's like Nicki Minaj is worse than Hitler. Like, oh, hold up, man! I understand. <laughs> <laughs> understand what you're saying, but understand what you're saying. All she does is rap. She's not committing any crimes. Like you sounding like, whoa, <laughs> getting all, you know, like she's out at the elementary school feeding drugs to kids. Right. And so um, I don't. I'm a kind of on a soapbox about that. You know, where people go to another level about some artists or some music that they really, you know, that they don't care for. And everybody's got a right to talk about what they don't care for, but, you know, just say it within the context of, you know, hey, I can understand why it's a hit, but that kind of thing is it's not, not for my me. Thing, you know. Yeah. Yeah, the snobbery, you know, a lot of, most people don't hang around musicians. Musicians, you tend to hang with each other. The snobbery can get to nuclear levels. <laughs> <laughs> And um, I just don't feel, and I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. Now, I, I don't get me wrong. I have my opinions, and I have standards. Everybody does, sure. You know, and there's stuff that I dig, stuff I don't dig. But if I don't dig something, I'm going to tell you why, and for purely musical reasons. Mm -hmm. You know why why I'm not digging it, and I'm not going to say that you're a sob for liking it. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean. Right. You know, if I see something in your car that I don't dig, I'm not about to give you a speech about why you shouldn't and all this other good stuff and, you know, how you're helping to kill music. No, I just think that it's music is a serious thing, but it's not that serious. Right? Yeah. And, and everybody has got a right to 
you're going to like something and you're going to not like something. But don't turn, if it's music, you know, just, my goodness, don't turn it into, you know, that, that it goes on steroids, man. It just gets, it just gets nuts. And there's really no horrible music that is worthy of some of the, some of the, some of the, the talk that I hear. I totally, completely understand people who were about hip hop in the early 90s or mid 90s or whatever or or 80s who can't use it now i understand every reason why they can't use it mm-hmm. I, you know I, I i i get that i understand it for me i t- i can use it because the hip hop from before was it seems to me i'm still learning it seems to me that that was rapper rapper based mm-hmm. and that and what the artist totally. was rapping to um left a guy like me out of the picture because it was always a sample mm-hmm. whereas now i can sit down and i can create a whole me or or you know anybody like me or anybody else you can sit down and and create something as opposed to just taking a, a so-and-so sample and you just you just rap to it. Now, unfortunately, with that, the rapping these days um, is not like it like it used to be. Mm-hmm. From, from <laughs> what I can hear. but I don't. I, I tell my lady and I tell a lot of my musician friends, I'm not hearing the rapper when I listen to the stuff. I'm listening to the where's that what that synthesizer sound come from and what is that? Is that a, is that a choir going backwards? How did how did they get that sound? That for me, that that's my interest in hip hop, not the artist, not not Wale, not Iggy, not uh, anybody who's successful right now. I could care less about their rapping. For me, it's what the producers are doing underneath mm-hmm. them. Yeah. So, and I, I also tell my musician friends, like you know. You'll you'll get a musician. They'll be like, "Oh man, you know uh, stuff like the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC. Uh, you know that shouldn't. You know I, I don't even know why they make that." I'm like, "Look, I'm like twelve year twelve year old girls are, are not about to listen. You know what I'm saying to to uh, like a twelve year old girl is not going to listen to an O'Till Burbage. You know <laughs> Burbage record. You know what I mean? That's not her lane. You need." A eight-year-old, uh, a twelve-year-old girl is going to something like the Backstreet Boys or NSYNC or that's or Justin Bieber. That is a, is age appropriate for them, mm-hmm. for their level of understanding, for their enjoyment of music. You know what I mean? A twelve-year-old girl, she doesn't know what she didn't. She doesn't know what what instruments make the sounds, much less you know if if what key is in or <laughs> any of that. Exactly. And, yeah. and you know, what I also lay on people like that is, you know, when you were 12 years old, the stuff that you like, the people who are your age now were saying that exact same thing about it. Oh, yeah. It sounded great to you, but to them, to the people who were 40, 50, 60, and so forth, that stuff sounded like garbage. So, uh, oh, man, no, man, Earth, Wind, and Fire wasn't... Well, I agree with you. Earth, Wind, and Fire was the bomb. But I'm telling... I, I remember... I was sitting down on the porch one time, me and my buddy, we were listening to the Temptations and the Delphonics and people like that. And uh, my father was coming home from work. He says, 
y'all boys, y'all don't know what, what good music is. Good music was the stuff that you heard behind Cab Calloway. That's good music. Yeah, okay. And, you know, <laughs> I, did that. I, I know that that the Duke Ellington, that used to be the dance music of the 40s and the 50s and, and, and so forth. And uh, I'm good with that. I like that. I have Duke Ellington records. But, yo, man, Temptations was cool. <laughs> Delphonics. And maybe I'm just saying that because I'm from that era. The Temptations and Delphonics well, they, they are, cool. <laughs> are not the back, not the Backstreet Boys. Mm-hmm. But maybe my age is is telling telling on itself. I just don't think I, I I tend to think that I'm fairly good at being able to cut out my era and all of that stuff. Um, but you know, I don't know. Maybe I'm not objective. I'm I'm not a Backstreet Boys. Person. We were at a cookout on Saturday, or Sunday rather, and uh, the person doing the cookout was playing a popular radio station, and his granddaughter was there. She knew every song, and these were artists that I, half of them, I wasn't even familiar with. So that's that's definitely true. What you're saying, you know, it's like a 12 year old person young person they're gonna like something very 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 different yeah somebody's got to make music for them you know somebody's got to and i'll tell somebody else i said all right you don't like drake okay what if you had a record label doing hip-hop would you like to have a guy on your label selling like that yeah man but well that's what yeah man but that's why you know him he sells a lot of records Mm mm-hmm whether you like them or not, that's completely, you know, I, I, I understand that. But, I, you know, I just try and get guys to, to think, you know, to understand that because you don't like something doesn't change the value of what you're not liking to mm-hmm. the overall public. I mean, I don't understand Britney Spears. I, I, you know, I don't get it. She's made more money than Janet Jackson made. But. A lot of people like her. A lot of people like their records. Mm, yeah, true indeed. You know, I don't get it. But if I had a label and I had a chance to get some 16, 17-year-old girl with, with uh, that could do do a little something, I don't know if I could stoop as low as her. Let me stop lying. Because <laughs> you got to have some kind of talent. But you you know what I'm saying. I mean, at, at a certain point, sometimes it's a it's a business thing, and I'm sure that whatever whoever her label was, that's what they thought that you know we can market her just like uh, Usher and that who's that boy that he discovered um, Bieber, Justin Bieber. Yeah, what is it? Be- yeah, just Justin Bieber. I mean, like, no. But I guess he's made substantial dollars from it. Money in the bank. I, there used to be a time when, uh, this is back when there was vinyl, when my favorite thing was going to the, the store and just checking out what was new and buying stuff and then bring it home, practice to it, see what I could learn from it, be inspired and all that. That Those days, that, that really doesn't happen that often Not at all. all. It's just once in a while. And it's a drag because even though I've been out here for a bajillion years, I still want to be inspired. I still want oh, yeah. something something new 
And I mean, when I say new, just something that I haven't heard before, you know, that that does something to me that ins- inspires me. And not just, I'm not like uh, a lot of cats in my age bracket who will are listening to the same stuff all the time, like 100% of the time that they listen to in 